All right. So the, the yeah, it's going to be a little noisy for a little bit because the kids play for about 10, 15 minutes in the room next door here. We'll try to overcome. If I'm not speaking loudly enough, just let me know. Okay. Thank you. Can you close that door also, please, Dr. Feller? Okay. Udo's coming also, I think. Oh, forget it. If it's, Dr. Feller, just leave it. Just leave it. Okay. Okay. All right. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Um... All right, so we're talking tonight about prayer. Uh, so the the goal of this uh, of this uh, of this series, Judaism on Fire, is to revisit some things that we do all the time, and to try to uh, look at them perhaps from a slightly deeper perspective, so they become more meaningful. Sometimes when we do things over and over again, it's very hard not to start doing them by rote, not to just get into an or into a mode, into a groove where it's just, this is what we do, and, and we do it, and do we, we don't really think about it, and we don't really, so we don't really know, so why are we doing the things we're doing? I'm not, tonight's class, even though we're talking about prayer, for this, these two classes, the, so the, just the structure of the series is going to be two classes on prayer, this week and, and uh, next week in Mitzvah Hashem. The following week will be about Purim, because it's going to be right before Purim. Then uh, immediately after Purim, we're going to do two classes on Shabbos, and then we'll be close enough to Pesach, we'll do a class on Pesach as well. So that's the that's that's my that's my intention with the with, for these classes. I, I'm not focusing tonight on tefillah specifically, as you know. I'm not focusing focusing on prayer per se, meaning the words. I'm not going to go through the davening and try to look the, look at the meanings. That in itself is a is a whole study and very worthwhile. I'm going to I'm going to touch on that aspect of that people should do that, but that's uh, that's that's not the goal of tonight's class. The goal of tonight's class is to actually discuss the concept of prayer. I'll tell you the truth. When, when you know nowadays, in, in the in the last fifteen or twenty years, there've been a lot of things. You can try to close it if you can close it. I think it's jammed a little bit. Um, if the in the last fifteen or twenty years, a lot of stuff has been written. When I was about twenty years old, I I, I set out on one summer to explore the concept of tefillah, and I, it was very hard to actually. For there was there's was, there there's some stuff written written, but it's it's kind of obscure and it was hard to find. I spent an entire summer, and it came out with a, a piece that I wrote. To, you know, it was, a, it was about, 10, ten, about ten pages of stuff that I was able to research and ideas I came out with, and in terms of why we say the prayers at different times, and what the whole concept of prayer, and why we use a set liturgy, how can we go over and over again? Which those ideas I built on over the years, but I, in recent years, there's so much. There's just so many new svarim that have come out that are so much easier to. Not all of them are in English. This particular sefer, which is which is going to be a, a, a large base, is a sefer called Sha'arim Betfila. Literally means the gateways to prayer. It was written by a man by the name of Shimshon Pincus. was one of the, was a phenomenal lecturer in Israel. Unfortunately, he he and his wife and daughter were killed in a car crash, and you know, you know way too young. But but you know, he was a, he was a phenomenally inspirational inspirational person. And this is a sefer that I recommend for anybody that if you know if you want to really delve into tefillah and you want to have a, a feeling that every time you open up you sit down to start davening this is this if you l- learn through this sefer i guarantee you you will your your tefillos your prayers your whole your whole attitude towards prayer will change let me let me be uh start with an introduction of the beautiful story that i just heard today which kind of gave me a, a focus for what the lecture was Rabbi sandro came back from oh you heard the story really well Rabbi sandro came back from baltimore and he told me oh maybe you didn't it's a fascinating know. fascinating story fascinating story that he told me 
So, uh, as, as some of you may be aware, recently, like about a, a, in the last two years, one of the one of the leader one of the leading rabbis of the Jewish people, a man by the name of Rabbi Leib Steinman, was passed away. He was a he he his whole life was a cheder rebbe. Often we think of the great rabbis, you know, they probably have a big yeshiva, an academy, they teach adults, they teach older students. He taught little kids, he taught little kids his whole life, he lived to be 105 or so, something like that, it was 105, 108, I'm not sure exactly, lucid until his last day. He came here to America when he was about, he did a tour around America when he was about 98 years old. They, they brought him to America and took him around from city to city, it was, it was an unbelievable thing to see. Listen to this. And listen to the story with incredible, incredible insight into how to educate and how to understand people. But it also gives us an insight and, and, and sort of an introduction, uh, a sort of a basis to start talking about tefillah. So the story went like this: There was a Beis Yaakov. There was a, a girls' a girls' high school in, in a girls' school in in Israel. I'm not sure for what, what age exactly. Probably, uh, probably uh, middle. Let's, let's assume there was probably middle school girls. And one of the kids in the class, unfortunately, got very sick. And because of her illness, she, uh, it kind of affected her so that she looked a little, or looked a little funny. Maybe it was the medications or the treatments or whatever it was. I'm not sure exactly what the illness was, but she she looked a little funny. She walked a little funny. And you know, the, the teachers gave the, all the kids a big lecture before the, the start of the new school year that this this girl is coming back and she's not going to look like she used to look before. And, and she you know she drags her feet a little bit and maybe she's a little slower than she used to be. And you have to be considerate and you have to give her give her room. You know, the first two weeks of school went off fine. You know, all the girls are trying to be helpful, and they're trying to help her. Uh, over time, you know, kids will be kids, and the kids started to get a little... They, they, they lost their patience, started to lose their patience a little bit. Started to make fun of her a little bit, started to make her, you know, imitate her, the way she dragged her feet, and the way she, her body was twisted, and, and they, they, they didn't have as much tolerance for her. And it got so bad, it got to the point, as much as the teacher attempted to try to get the kids to be considerate and how could you do this and what, what kind of horrible mitos do you have what kind of horrible character, character traits do you have you would, you would make fun of a kid that's sick kids will be kids and, and, but it got to the point that it was so bad for this poor girl that she, she left the school she couldn't come to school anymore the teacher was distraught she, she couldn't believe that she didn't have the ability to reach her kids to reach her students and to be able to tell them what the way they should behave properly. And she really, she just couldn't get over it. It really, really, really bothered her. It really ate away at her. Finally, she got her husband to make an appointment for her to meet, go see Rebleib Steinman. Rebleib Steinman, big, the, you know, the a tremendous mechanic, tremendous educator, one of the leading rabbis. Well, she wants to go get advice. How, how, do, how do I deal with this? How do I deal with my feelings as a failure, as a teacher, as a person, and, 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 and my students? What do, I, what do I tell my students that they did the, you know, that they caused this girl such t- tremendous pain? So they went to see Rosh Simon. The, the, the insight here is brilliant. So he says to them, he says to her, he says to the teacher, he says, he says, Tell, how old are your students? She says, oh, they're about, you know, 10, somewhere between 11 and, 11 and 13, right? He says, do, you, do your students pray? Do they daven every morning? Do they, do they have davening? So she says, of course, it's the first thing we do whenever we come to school. She said, here's what I want you to tell them. Tell them, tell them that... I am giving you a psak halacha. I am, I am, I am a halachic ruling. A, rule, a halachic ruling, it's forbidden for them to pray. These girls are not allowed to pray. They're not invited to do that. If you can act in that manner, you can't pray. You don't, you, you don't have that right anymore. Of course, when she went back to school, 
and she told her students, they, they come in, you know, all excited, you know, as, you know, as the day starts, and they all start taking their sidurim, their prayer books, not getting ready for purchases. Put your sidurim away. Rav Shleiman paskind, Rav Shleiman ruled, it's forbidden you for you girls to pray. Obviously, the effect on these girls is like tremendous. It's like, what? We can't pr- what, do you, what do you mean we can't pray? They, all of a sudden, she said, no, Rav Shleiman said, if you behave like that, you don't deserve to talk to God. What do you think this is, a joke? It's a game? If you are talking to God, you have to be a person who's worthy to talk to God. You can't just, you can't just come in here and think that it's a... It's not, it's not a game. It's not, and obviously that message got through to them. The, these girls were so shocked, so taken aback by what that is. So, you know, to me, the story is brilliant. You know, it's the, the insight to understand the psyche of these girls. And to understand, and, uh, look... Who, we all do that. We all. What, what do we think about? How often do we think? Do we stop and think before you go into prayer? I used to. I told the story once when I was. I remember from when I was when I was a very little boy. When I was, I think in the in the first grade. I think I was six years old. <clears throat> the, you know, when you start to say the Shema Esrei, when you start to say the the morning prayer before you start saying the main the main part of the Shema Esrei, you say you say six little words. You say Hashem Sfasai Tiftach Ufiyah which means Hashem God. Please open up my mouth and my and I and I open up my lips and allow my mouth to say your praises. I remember, and you're supposed to take three steps back before you say that, and then you step three steps forward. Right? That's that. That's the way we do it. When I was in the first grade, my Mora, I'll, I'll, you know, she, I'll never forget her because of this. She's, you know, my Mora Shoshana Wolfson said, right? She said, when you saying that, before you start saying that, you have to stop and you have to say to yourself. We are now dialing to Hashem. We are now, we are now, just grab a chair from right outside. We are now dialing to Hashem. Meaning, we're, we're about to get on the telephone. We're about to speak face to face with God. That's what it's all about. This is something real. It has to be real to you. Because she did that when I was, wait, and that, you know, it stuck with me. It's, 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 I won't say exactly how many years later, but it's a lot of years later. Not, you know, not for everybody in this room, but for most of them. Some of the people in this room, are, you know, it's, it's too many years to, to, to say. But now that, that's, that's the attitude. I'm talking directly to God. That's the first thing that we have to remember when, we're, when we say tefillah. And when we say, when we say that tefillah, we have to remember the following. We, we're talking to God. Who are you to be talking to God? What do you mean you're, you're going you're gonna to talk to God? Really? You know, the Navi, the prophet Isaiah says in the first, in the first chapter in Isaiah, it's, in the, it's, a, it's a haftarah that we say on the Shabbos before Tisha B'Av. And it's also, it's repeated again, a similar idea in the end of the prophet Micha. It says the following. It says, Mi bikesh zos ramos the, the, the Navi, the prophet, is so who, who asked you to come trample across my courtyards? Who asked you to come into my presence, God says. Meaning, what's going on over there is the Navi is, is rebuking the people and he's telling them that, you know, you, you oppress the poor and you don't take care of, you don't take care of, of the widows and the orphans and you, and you behave in, 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 an, in an arrogant manner and then you bring sacrifices. You come, you come Rosh Chodesh, come, you come, come Shabbos, come Yom Tov. You bring sacrifices and you think, oh, I'm such a great person because I brought sacrifices to God. God says... Who asked you to trample in my courtyard? Who, who, who invited you here? 
What, what are you doing here? You think because you bring some animal to me and you, and you burn it up, so therefore that's a, that somehow that, that, that atones for, the, for that attitude? Remember, the key, the key element of this is, is you're trying to speak directly to God. You have to be the kind of person that's worthy of doing that. There has to be a, there has to be a, a relationship there that we're on the same, we're quote-unquote on the same page. I am here to talk to you because I care about what it is that you command me to do. I care about what, what it is that you want for me. And I care about what it is that, that, that that's going to transform my whole interaction and make it into something that's special. But if I'm not cognizant of who I am, I'm the kind of person who can make fun of a little girl who, who is going through a treatment, then you can't. You don't even have a place to be here. There's, there's just no room for you. There's no opening for you. There's no, there's no possibility that you belong in this place. So it, it's something to remember. Again, it doesn't mean that we have to be tzaddikim gemuru. It doesn't mean that we have to be totally righteous people. It doesn't mean that we have to be people who never do anything wrong. But, but at the same time, we, we, we do have to take it seriously. This is the, the goal here is to wake up. Like we're, we're, what you're doing is not just something that we do just because that's what's done. It has to have meaning. It has to have token. It has to have content. It has to have something that's, that's, that, that's meaningful to it. And that's really, the, that's really a, a, a critical element of what it takes in order to, in order to, to really address what what the tfil, what the tefillah is all about, and in order to do that, and you know, and I said, as I said tonight, tonight the goal tonight is not actually to discuss the meaning of each of the prayers, but but understand that it is important to know what the prayers say. And by the way, not at the time that you're praying. In other words, that's not the time to do it. If you want to really pray properly, if you really want to pray, then you need to take the time out beforehand and prepare for it. Go into this ready to do what it is that you're supposed to do. Read the prayers. Look at them. Look at the translations. Look up, look up some of the explanations. There's, so, there's, hundreds, there's dozens and dozens of fascinating, amazing books in English that are accessible to everybody that you can read. You can read Rabbi Tversky's book on prayer. You can read, you can read Rabbi Schwab's book on prayer. You can read... They're, they're just... We have a monk's book on prayer. There are so many books out there that it's possible to do that. If anybody wants afterwards, I'm happy to give you a list of things that you... It's important that you read the prayers and understand what you're trying to accomplish with those prayers before you go in there. Imagine this. A person goes into a football game, right? We'll just use football because it's so, it's so easy for us to relate to. You go into a football game and the coach calls a new play that you should play during that football game. Now, I have to be quite honest with you. I grew up in South Africa. When coaching was a whole different thing over there. Like, we played soccer. It just happened. Like, the, the game unfolded as it unfolded. But football is a very static kind of game. Every move is planned out. When you get out on that field, this guy's supposed to run this way, and this guy's... That's my understanding, right? You, the, the plays are set up. Imagine the coach calls a new play, a new play but they, you, didn't, you didn't practice during your practice session. What's going to happen? He calls this new play, and he shows you on the board exactly how to run it, and you've never run this play in practice. What happens? Total confusion. This guy runs the wrong way. This guy runs into into. It's gonna be. It's gonna be. It's gonna be a. It's gonna. It's it's gonna be a disaster. When you when a, when one of us when we go into prayer and we haven't prepared for it properly, we haven't thought about what prayer is really all about. We haven't given any thought. I'll, I'll give you a classical question that every. I'm sure all of you have thought of this question before, and there, there's no question that that that. How is it that we can go every single day and repeat the exact same prayer that we said yesterday? I know that when my kids come to me and they ask me for something that they asked for yesterday and the day before and the day before, by the time it gets to day three, I already don't have any patience for them. Day in and day out, every single day to ask God for the exact same things, what's going on? 
How do we do that? I'll come back to that and talk about that in a few minutes. But but it, how do we do that? But that's those are the kind of questions that you must be asking. We we all have to be asking ourselves these questions. We we can't just go through the motions. We can't just show up at davening in the morning, put on our tefillahs, put on our tefillah, and blah, 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 run through it, and then and get out of there. That's not, that, that. What's the what's the point? That's like. And that's like Rapinka says. That's like having a car, right? And you put it into first gear, right? And you start driving. Oh, this is known. This is only for those. Those almost everybody here understands. You do you have a driver's stick shift? Okay, you're the only one, probably. I imagine everybody else here is probably driven. Right, you put it in first gear. When it gets into first gear, it only goes up to a certain speed. If you r- drive it fast enough, you destroy the car. Okay? So you put it into first gear, and the car is going 20 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour, right? And you're thinking, wow, this is amazing. This is unbelievable. I mean, a person, a human being, running at his fastest can maybe run 10 to 12 miles an hour. So uh, that's, like, that's like a, a sprinter. Like, uh, I don't I'm, I'm out of date on who the, who the uh, Usain Bolt, I think, is, is, the, is, the, is, the, is the, the top sprinter now. Whatever his name is, right? He can run the 100 meters in, in 9 seconds, then he's wiped out, right? And that, if you calculate out what 100 meters at 9 seconds, it comes out to about, I think, 12 miles an hour. 12, he can't run 12 miles an hour, but he can, he can do, right? So even the, the fastest marathoner who can run maybe 10 miles an hour, right? You're, you're going 25. I mean, <laughs> this is amazing, right? And then, and then you, know, you, you push it a little, a little harder, and maybe the gears grind a little, but you get it up to 40, right? You get it, it's, it's going like 40 miles an hour. I don't know how long the car's going to last in first gear at 40 miles an hour, but you got to get it up to 40 miles, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm flying. And all of us, we're sitting here, we're saying, you idiot. If you just get it up to fourth gear, you know you could go, you could go 65, you, 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 legally. I mean, you, know, you, you could do any, you could do a lot of other things too, but, right? You, 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 you could be doing so much more. If you're a tefillah, if you go into your prayer and, and you go in unprepared, you go in an unrehearsed play, not only is it chaotic, but you're not getting what you could out of it. You have this incredible gift. You have the opportunity, we are now dialing to Hashem. I have an opportunity to, to speak directly to God. And not to prepare for it, not to be ready for it, not to know what the potential of what I'm doing is. What a waste. That's a, you're going to drive your car in first gear all your life because you, because you never thought about it? You have to think about it. It has to be something that concerns you. It has to be that you have to ask the questions and you have to think about the questions and they have to bother you. And then you have to, each time, and you have to refresh yourself constantly and you have to refresh, it has to be a consistent uh, idea that happens over and over again. And you have to make yourself the kind of person that really wants to be there to talk to God. Now, I want to show you that there's an interesting... Before I get into the interesting, let me just answer the question that I that I raised before in in a in a simplistic manner. There's more there's more complexity to that than, than than this, but at least let's at least have uh, if we're going to raise a question, we might as well we might as well put somewhat of an answer on the table, and it'll also give us another just another level of insight into what prayer is. So so we get out, we get out there and we pray every day and we say the same words over and over again. What's the why do we do that? What, why did why did the rabbi set it up that way? Why why is prayer structured so that it's so that it's so that it's a, a set liturgy that we're repeating over and over again? Isn't doesn't God get bored? Isn't there isn't there an aspect of this that that doesn't make any sense? That we're just annoying him? They're just like a, a buzzing fly. That he, they, why should he pay any attention to what it is that I'm saying? So the, the idea is like this. Well, this is what I believe is is the concept on its on on a certain level is what's is what's going on. You have to understand, to answer that question, you really have to ask another question about tefillah. You have to ask another question about prayer. And that is, there is a, a fundamental belief that we have, a fundamental idea that God is good. And every, the reason why we're praying to God is because we believe God is good and God is going, going to do the things that are good for me. But at the same time as God is good, God is also all-knowing. 
So that means that if God is good and God is all knowing, then He know, and then He will only and He's all knowing what is actually good for me and what's not good for me. Whether I perceive what's happening to me in my life today as being good, whether I perceive the events of my life as being good or not, ultimately I have to believe, or I should believe, that God really is only doing what is actually good for me. He's only giving me what is actually necessary for me here and now. Sometimes it doesn't taste good, just like when sometimes the doctor gives you medication or gives you an injection. It doesn't feel good at the time, but the fact of the matter is he's giving you a vaccine that's going to save your life, that it's going to prevent you from getting whatever disease it is, or he's going to give you, or, or the parent yells at their child or disciplines their child because they know that that's what's necessary in order for that child to have, to be able to grow up and, and, and experience things the way they are. Of course, that's only for good parents, and we remember to control our tempers and keep our egos in check and all the other things that are necessary. But God doesn't have those problems. God, if God is all-knowing and all-good, that means He knows everything that's good for me. What am I asking Him for? Whatever's happening for me today in my life, that's what, should, that's what, that's what I deserve. That's, what, that's what's good for me here and now. Why should I bother asking Him for anything else? Isn't He going to take care of me if I don't ask for it? He needs me to ask Him for it, if, and only then will He take care of it? So the answer to that is actually yes, but let's. Well, I'll come back to that in a, in a second. Well, that put that thought aside for just a moment. The, but on a deeper level, the answer to that is is, is as follows. Tefillah, by based on the 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 conclusion that one would draw based on that question, which is a very strong question, is that tefillah, all of prayer, is actually not really about making requests. As much as it sounds, and if you read through the Shemona Esra, you read through the, through the Amidah, the, that central prayer in the, in the, in the, where we ask, please give me knowledge and give me parnas, give me, give me a livelihood and take care of my health. And take, we seem to be asking over and over and over again for all such different things. The, the reality is, is none of that is actually a request. None of, it's actually a statement phrased as a request. Why would I phrase a statement as a request? Because if I'm serious about what I'm doing, and if I, if I really believe that what I'm doing actually makes a difference, then I expect that whatever I ask for, God could actually do. So in effect, essentially what I'm doing, when I ask, when I make a request of God, I'm not, if, if, what I, if I'm understanding what I'm doing, I'm saying, God, you are capable of giving me knowledge. Therefore, I would like to have knowledge. In essence, the, 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 the idea of that request is that it's a declaration of God's ability to provide these things for you. In other words, and who am I telling that to? Not to God. God doesn't need me to tell him that, that, he, that he can do all these things for me. I'm really telling that to myself. In other words, prayer, actually, the word, the Hebrew word for prayer is lehit palel. To pray is lehit palel. In, in Hebrew, there are, there are different, uh, um, what's, what's the word for binyanim? How would you translate binyanim? Um, there are different, uh, um, I'm sorry? Conjugations. No, they're not conjugations. It's like, they're like different forms in which, in which it forms in which the language expresses itself. So there's what's called binyan kal is the simple way of expressing things. There's, there's third person way of expressing things. The, 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 the binyan of, of lehit palel that fits into lehit palel is actually the seventh of, there are actually seven different forms in which Hebrew can be expressed. Some are passive, some are more strong. Hit, lehit palel is reflexive. It's a reflexive form of speaking. So the hit palel actually means that the that the that the tefillah is going back on myself. 
I am the one that is engaged in, and the word palil actually means to struggle. I am the one that's engaged in a struggle. What is the struggle that I'm engaged with? I'm engaged in an internal struggle to clarify for myself what is it that God's actually capable of. And I'm inculcating or stating to myself over and over all of these ideas is a deeper concept of God, the reason why I'm asking you for this is because I truly believe or I'm trying to, I'm working on myself to bring about the understanding that you are the one that is all capable, all knowing and the possibility exists for you to do this for me. Therefore, in other words, what I'm essentially doing is I could simply say, if I was to sum up what prayer is all about, God, you can do everything. God, you can do everything. You can do this, you can do that, you can do the other thing. That's all I'm doing. It's essentially, it's not a request. It's only phrased as a request in the sense that knowing that when I ask something from somebody, they must be capable of doing that, otherwise I'm wasting my breath. And therefore, by asking this of God, I am therefore defining for myself how how expansive and how great God's powers actually are. What difference does that make? Why does that make a difference to repeating the prayer over and over again, to saying the same things one, one day and then again and then again? Because for every time that I do that, and every time I'm actually reflecting on that idea, I'm actually changing myself into, into a greater maimon, into a greater believer. I'm turning myself into somebody that has a deeper relationship with the one to whom I'm praying, with the Almighty. I'm actually declaring the Almighty being the Almighty One. And therefore, the more I sense that, the more I feel that, the closer I actually become to God. The closer I become to God, then that, what, that, what that does, the morale explains, is it changes who you are as a person. In other words, the, the muscle that I like to use for this, the parable that I like to use to describe this is as follows. Imagine you have one of those, I don't know if you, if you guys remember this, but when I was a kid growing up, we had these self-read books, where basically what it was, you make up the story as you go along. You open up a book, you open up to page 10, and it gives you three options of what you do. If you go through the left door, then you turn to page whatever. You turn to the right door, turn to page. So you basically, you're making the story up as you go along, because every, you, would, you would define the ending as, as it was. What's happening when I, the, the, to the, the, the degree, the storyline that's relevant to me as a person depends on which page I decided to be on. If I decided to be on page 10, then the storyline is like this. If I decided to be on page 25, then the storyline is a different way. And if I'm to say that I'm going to be on page 50, then I am now on, and I have a whole different storyline. My neshama, my soul, my, the, the being that I am today is not the being that I will be tomorrow. Or I hope that it will be, it's not the being that I'll be tomorrow. Hopefully tomorrow I'll be a whole new person. I'll be a better person than I was. And every time I go through tefillah, every time I go through a prayer service, every time I go through an engagement where I'm truly engaging with God, what I'm doing is I'm actually expressing a different relationship with Him and, and I'm deepening that relationship and I'm changing the page that we're working off of. So, if, God, if my, if my storyline is supposed to go on a straight, on a, in a very straight, on a, on a very straight flat plane, I have the potential to actually jack that up and move that graph to a much higher plane and say, okay, instead of functioning on that plane, I'm now going to function on plane on a different plane. And that means that on that higher plane with a different relationship with God, the whole story changes.
So when I repeat those tefillos over and over again, and to me it seems like nothing's actually happening, it's only that nothing's actually happening if I'm not allowing it to affect me. But to the degree that it affects me, it changes my entire reality, it changes my relationship with God, and then the outcome of who I am is completely different. Now, if you start to think about this, essentially what that means is, for those of you that play chess, right, you'll know that whenever a person makes a move, so you're thinking, what does that move mean? What's the consequences three or four moves down the line of what's going to happen here? That means that God, every time we're moving, He has multiple different storylines for this person wherever He goes. If He raises His soul up here, the storyline's going to be like this. If He drops His soul down there, His storyline's going to be like that. That's what it means to have an infinite relationship with God that's, complete, that's infinite, and there's no end to the potential of what I can accomplish directly through prayer. Directly, just through this, like this concept of tefillah, forget all the other things that we do. Of course, every mitzvah affects us. Every time we're engaged in something, it affects us. But specifically, when we come to speak to God and we come prepared and we come with the right mindset of who we who we are and what we're going to what, what what we're trying to accomplish here, every time, even though I'm repeating the same prayer, the the the, the Chazal teach us, our rabbis teach us that no two prayers are ever exactly the same because you, there's no way that on any given day that you feel exactly the way you felt yesterday. There's no way that you feel that you have the same the same level of concentration either. That it's more, it's less, there's no, there's no, there's no, the, your, your inner sense of your own comfort is going to change. Everything, everything about you changes every single time you enter into, into this, this, this struggle, so to speak, with God. When I enter into this wrestling match, which is really a reflexive wrestling match on myself, to open myself up to the concept that God is the one that's providing everything that I need and everything that, that, that I'm capable and everything that's necessary for me, all that's doing. And the reason why it's a set liturgy is, is a simple analogy is like this. is because that is, those, those are the, the most reliable telephone lines possible. You know, that's the, it's, it's going to be, as the years go on, this is going to become a harder muscle, a harder, a harder parable to use. But, but as we know, if you lay the lines down, instead of trying to set new cables and new lines that you have no idea whether or not they're actually going to connect, these lines of connection, these lines of communication are lines that are guaranteed to get through. They're ga- lines of, that are guaranteed to connect you in the ways that you're supposed to be connected. And when you utilize those lines, you get to change yourself every single time that you do that, and every single prayer creates a whole new reality so you can move into a whole new dimension, you create a whole new story for yourself. Every single time, every single prayer is not the same. It may sound the same. You may use the same words. But in the same way as when a, a sophisticated novelist uses one or, or philosopher uses, uses terminology and a child uses the same exact words, they can mean two completely different things because there's an understanding that those words have a much deeper and a more significant effect. You, we, in every tefillah that we do, every time we, every time we sit down to pray, we have that same capability. We have that way of, we have an ability to change our relationship completely with God. Now I started off by saying that me who asked you to come trampling across my, my courtyards? God, does God really want our prayers? Now there is, a, there is a, a, an idea that is really completely opposite to that and that is as follows. <clears throat> Where does the concept of prayer start from? Where is the first time that we find prayer in, in the Torah itself? So the answer to that is is actually right at the very beginning of creation. With the creation of man, the essence of the creation of man is about prayer. 
because it says as follows. It says that if some, the Bible critics will have you believe that the chapter one was written by one by one deity or by one one group of people, and chapter two, which starts off, Ve'ela told us Hashemayim va'aretz. These are the generations, or these are the this is the history of the creation of the heavens and the earth. After it just told me the whole creation story in chapter one, it starts chapter two with this is the this is the story of the creation, and it says it tells you a completely different creation story. It's it says that everything was created and nothing was growing because there was no there was no rain yet on the earth and there was no man lavod es ha'adama there was no mankind to work to till the earth and therefore nothing had come into nothing had come into being so the talmud said the, the talmud teaches us the major says the, what does that mean lavod avoda avoda shebelev means the the work of the heart the service of the heart that's tefillah that's prayer and the reason why the world hadn't reached its full potential, meaning all things were created and were in, existed in potential, but didn't, hadn't come out yet. Because it had, rain had not yet descended upon the earth. So that Chazal tell us why was there no rain? Because no, there was no human being to pray for that rain. God created mankind and man prayed. And then the the aid yalim in our earth and a dew came up from the earth and watered the whole land and all of the plants and everything and everything came into being everything 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 reached its full potential meaning at the very outset of creation the whole purpose of creation was in order to have prayer in order to have tefillah so how do how do these two these two seemingly contradictory ideas go together. How do we deal with, on one hand I, I was telling you before that what do you mean? Who, what does God need your prayers for? God really needs your prayers? I've, I've said this sometimes, sometimes I say this a little harshly Elena's not here to remind me how, how I really should say it but, but sometimes I say God doesn't care about your prayers you are insignificant to God you are, anything that you do is meaningless to Him because God is perfect and He doesn't need you and yet it says that in order for the world to come into being, God created in such a way that He actually does need you. In other words, God created a flawed world which we perfect. In fact, that's the famous that's the famous conversation between Rabbi Akiva and the Roman and the Roman. I forgot what is it. I think um, I think it was Vespasian. But Rabbi Akiva has a conversation with with the Roman, and he says to him, "Why do you Jews mutilate your bodies? Why do you do a bris milah? Why do? You, how can you do that? Isn't your God perfect? Didn't He create human beings perfect?" So Bekiva answered him, why do you bake your bread? Why don't you just eat the wheat straight out of the field? The answer is, it's not ready to eat yet. It needs to be perfected. God created a world that needs fixing, needs tikkun, it requires repair. And he wanted us to know that. So he said, this is what, this is the mission, this is the way that you can bring about a repair to the world. To do a brismila, to give tzedakah, to give charity to the poor. God, the, the second question he asked him was, why do you give charity to the poor? Why would you give charity to the poor? God gave money to the people that he wanted to have money, and he didn't give money to the people that he didn't want to have money. So why are you messing with God's plans? You go and give that guy money? God didn't want him to have money. That's why he doesn't have money. Don't you believe that everything that happens in the world is because that's what God wants to happen? And he said, of course that's what God wants to happen. But he also wants you to perfect that world. He created an imperfect world deliberately so that we could have a hand in doing that, so that we could 
This is masculine, right? So we could manifest spiritual potential in the physical dimension. We could take this to higher, to higher realms of, re, of reality, of doing chesed, of mahu afata, that you should be just like God, and manifest that in ways that, that you share with other people, that you give to other people, that you contribute to other people. So which one is it? Does God want our prayers, or does He not want our prayers? Is it me, B'Kesh, those Romans, Chatzerai, who asked you to trample across my courtyards? Or is it, Ki Adam Ayim Ba'adam, there was no man in the world to pray and there was no person there to pray yet and therefore the world couldn't function without mankind to function. The answer is that it's both. There's a, tr- there's a dichotomy in prayer that's very important to understand, that's very critical, that, that it underlies everything that we do within Tefillah. And that is like this. The Talmud tells us that there are two sources for prayer. Number one is the, the, the Karban Hatamid. One is that the prayer is a replacement for the daily sacrifice that was brought in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. And number two is because Avos Tiknum, because the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, structured the day around prayer. And maybe another time we'll talk about why Abraham was, was about chakras, the morning prayer, Yitzchak was Mincha, the afternoon prayer, Yaakov is the evening prayer, and the, the place where we learn them, why specifically each one could, did what, what they did, that's, that's not for tonight. But, but one, so one concept is that the forefather, our forefathers set up Tfilah, and the other is that we're doing it as, is Unashalma part we say that our lips should be a replacement for the cows that are no longer being sacrificed in Jerusalem. In other words, the, 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 again, it's, not, it's very hard for us to relate to the concept of sacrifices. Slaughtering an animal, blood, meat, oh, bad smells, all that. Oh, what, what does that have to do with God's like, It's a concept that's very difficult. The, 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 the underlying principle is Karban means something to be karev. It's a way of utilizing that animal as a replacement of myself to bring myself closer to God. I am sacrificing my whole being, dedicating my whole being to being closer to God. That's the concept of karban. So either, either tefillah is about bringing myself closer through the base Hamikdash to God, or it's about bringing myself closer through the relationship that the Avos Hakadoshim that the, that our forefathers had with with God, that they established the concepts of prayer. These, those two principles are as, as follows. You say it all the time in your tefillahs. Let's say during the, during the Asesame Tshuva, during the 10 days of repentance, you say, Avinu Malkeinu such and such. Our, our Father, our King. We pray to God on two different planes. We have two different relationships with Him. One is a relationship of Father. One is a relationship of King. One is a relationship of Karb of, of Malchus, of, of absolute kingship, that we are your Avadim, we are your servants, we serve you where you are, you tell us what we're supposed to do. The other is a relationship of a child to a parent, recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you, we, we, we recognize your sovereignty over us, not because of something that you force onto us, but because it's intrinsic within our very being, in the same way that a person has respect for their parents, because they recognize that their parent is what brought them into their world, you are, your whole existence is only here because you have parents, and because those parents are the ones that brought you into this world, you recognize that I have a relationship with God, because God is the one that made that, that, that allowed me to exist. Or I have a relationship with God. So is it, is it, from, is it a bottom-up relationship? Or is it a top-down relationship? Avinu, it's a, to, it's a, it's a bottom-up relationship. Malkenu, it's a, it's a top-down relationship. Both of those are true within Tefillah. One's the aspect of Karman and Tefillah. It's in the Beis HaMikdash. The other is the other entrance into the heavenly courts. The other place where the, where the world is connected is a place called Hebron. What is Hebron? The word Hebron, the, word, the Hebrew word Hebron comes from the word Chibur. A connection. It's a place of connection. It's a place where 
where our forefathers are buried in Ma'aras HaMachpela, in the double cave. What's the, con- the concept of a double cave means? An existence that is doubled over, whether it's in this dimension, in the physical dimension or the spiritual dimension, their existence is exactly the same. They recognized, they, they fully comprehended the whole picture of how God expected the world to function, and they were complete paradigms of manifestation of spiritual potential in this world. They recognized every element of Torah before the Torah was even given, because they were able to see the whole construct of the world as the Torah, as the Torah misses. To them, it was obvious Every aspect of that. That's why Chazal tells us, that's why our rabbis teach us that Avram Avinu kept every single mitzvah. Even the mitzvahs der Abonin, even the rabbinic decrees that were to come many, many years later, Abraham knew about them. Why? So there are many proofs to this, but just the explicit ones, right? You know that when love and when, when, the, when the angels, when the celestial beings come, the messengers come to destroy Sodom, what, is, what does the Torah tell us that Lot fed them? It says he gave them matzah. Why did he give them matzah? Chazal tells us, Yitzchak was born on the first day of Nisan, and that day when they came to Lot, they came straight from Avram to say that a year from now your child is going to be born. It means it was the first day of Pesach. That means that on the first day of Pesach, when they came to Lot, they got matzah. How did you know to give them matzah? Because he lived in Avram's house, and in Avram's house they did all of the mitzvahs. It says that when, the, when, uh, when Yosef was complaining about his brothers, he said, what was, the, what, were the, what was the problem of what his brothers did? They didn't slaughter the animals properly. They didn't slaughter the animals properly. They were eating. They were eating Avram and Achai. They were eating animals from uh, off the live, off the hoof. So the, the Gemara tells the, the Talmud explains that the reason why they were doing that. This is a fascinating. Just as an aside, there's a fascinating concept. There's a concept that the Talmud talks about called a ben pakua, which is which is a, a which is a, a fetus that is in, alive inside the mother at the time that you slaughter her, and then you open up the mother's womb, and the and the and the fetus is still alive. So the halacha is. That that fetus, that that living calf now does not need shechita. Does not you're not required to do shechita to it. And in case you think this is a Talmudic dream, right? Rabbi Heinemann in Baltimore has an entire form of Ben Pakuas today. He has an entire form of these fetuses that he's that he's breeding. Um, it's, it's for economic reasons. Basically, the reason why he do why he does it is is because. They don't require shechita, which means shechita is very expensive because a shochet is a highly trained professional and it costs a lot of money to have him do the shechita. And you have to check every animal to make sure that there are no lesions on the lungs and there's nothing wrong with it. But these ben pakuas, you don't have to check them because they're not considered a separate living being. They're considered they're considering a walking dead animal. They're considered dead even as they're alive. So 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 you don't have to check them. So it, it saves all sorts of basically. There's if an animal has, uh, has lesions on its lungs, so it's called a trefa, which is, which is where the word treif comes from. When we talk about non-kosher food as being treif, it's not really, it's a, it's a, it's a borrowed term. The term trefa literally means an animal that has some sort of a blemish that will cause it to die within a year. A ben pakua is a walking dead animal, so that you don't have to worry about that it's going to die within a year. It doesn't matter what blemishes it has, you can use it. The, the reality in the meat industry is, is that about 30% of the animals that are slaughtered can't be used. 30% of the animals are, are trefas. They have to sell them off at a, at a loss to a non-kosher abattoir to be sold as, as non-kosher meat. So, and, and you, so, so when you have a ben pakua, you're saving a lot of money. You, you don't lose that whole 30%. You don't have to use a shokhet. He has a whole farm of these. He told me recently that he slaughtered 80 of them. Now, 80 doesn't go very far in the, into, you know, in the Jewish eat, meat-eating market. That's not going to take you so far. But, but, but uh, you know, over time, he will build up his collection of the, his, his, his herd of these things, and, and uh, he's hoping that he can impact the price of kosher meat to bring it down. 
Anyway, that's just a, so this an aside. What? However you want. You do whatever you want to them. You find the most, the, the most, the least painful way to kill them, and you but kill them. You find them. You, he, so, so it's interesting. The law is like this: once you have two, once you have one of them, all of its offspring, as long as it's mated with another ben pakua, all of its offspring forever will always be ben pakuas. Right. <laughs> so you understand what I'm saying? You know, so, so essentially that means that you, as long as you had two of them and you, and, you, and you were able to breed them together, and they don't even, they don't even breed them naturally anymore anyway. All, it's all done artificially. So, so, so it just, uh, it, you know, once you had two of them, you're, you're all set. As long as you had a male and a female, you're set for your set. And then you, you just generations you and generations. Yes, you had to find the first two. So you find how do you do that? Well, you find a pregnant cow and you slaughter it right right before it's about to give birth, and then you have a live fetus inside. You take the fetus out in today's dinner. If you find out that that cow that was killed, it has to be a kosher. Yeah, it has to be a kosher cow. Yeah, that's 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 the chance you have to take. Yeah, that has to be a kosher cow, completely kosher. Okay, so how do we get to Bimpakua? So we, so we're talking. So we're, so we're saying that Joseph said to his father, "My brothers are eating from animals that are not slaughtered." What was he worried about slaughtering? What slaughtered? The answer is the the, the 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 our forefathers and their families kept all of the halachos in the Torah, kept all of the laws in the Torah from the time that for, for, for even before the Torah was given, because they understood how each of the mitzvahs and each of the each concept in the mitzvah is a building block for the world. And those building blocks of the world are, are, are our reality. So that's what I'm saying over here. So, so within Tefillah, so that, that's the concept of machpelah, of a double cave. A double cave means they lived in this world as you live in the next world. The whole world was, was a transcendent world. They lived from a world that was bottom up. They lived from a world, their relationship with HaKadosh Baruch their relationship with God was a avinu, was a totally a fatherly relationship. And that's why they're buried in Hebron, which is one of the other entrance to the, to the, to the other place of connection to God. It's the place of Chib that's the word, the name Hebron didn't come out from nowhere. The name Hebron is the ancient name, was already a biblical name, was called Hebron because that's the Makam of Chibur, of connection to God. Now we know the other place of connection to God is the Beis HaMikdash, but that's a different kind of relationship. That's a relationship that's top down. That's a relationship of, of Malkenu. That's a relationship of kingship. That's a relationship of awe. That's a relationship that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is influencing us from the top down. So there are two elements of Tefillah that reflect that. One is, you want to come in front of me? Make sure you're ready. Make sure I uh, use this 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 uh, this example uh, when we're talking about you want to go in front of God. You have to know what it is to, to stand in front of God. You can't come just just any old way. You have to be prepared. You have to you have to you have to you have to physically prepare yourself. You have to mentally prepare yourself. You have to be ready because you're standing avoda. You're standing as a servant in front of God. But there's also an element of that. I throw myself and I have a relationship that I feel a closeness to God. That's Avinu. That's my father. That's our father. Both of those are true, and both of those elements. Are, are, are necessary. That dichotomy within Tefillah is a necessary part of how we build that relationship. And uh, hopefully next week, Hashem, we'll try to expand a little bit. I'll, go, I'll review this, this idea a little bit more and try to expand on this idea of this dichotomy of Avinu and Malkenu, both elements of what it takes to relate to God from the top down or from the bottom up, regardless of which one it is, whether it's a Tefillah that's Avas Tiknum created by the forefathers or is it Tefillahs that are Korbanas that, are, that, are, that follow the concept of Korbanas. Is it in the Beis Hamikdash or is it in Hebron? Where, where is it the Machpelah of, 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 of transforming ourselves? Both of those elements are true, and how do we utilize those to make our prayers more meaningful? Thank you very much for listening. But just you. after this.